0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Low unemployment, wage growth, cranes on the skyline. With such positive economic signs, why are Colorado businesses feeling uncertain? Trade's a big part of it. So is politics. It really comes
1: down to, in almost all of these cases, the concept of uncertainty.
0: Then, a veteran diplomat's view of the president's interactions with Ukraine. Later, when a U.S. president came to Pueblo and collapsed a short time later, Woodrow Wilson
2: was never the same. It's our worst incident of presidential disability. For the last year and a half of Wilson's presidency, he was not a fully functioning president. And it meant power
0: shifted to Mrs. Wilson. For those brief months, we did have a woman president. That fateful visit to Colorado a century ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Think of it as a mood ring for the economy. And the mood isn't great. A confidence index shows Colorado business leaders are pessimistic for the first time since the end of the Great Recession. What does this mean for workers, consumers? Business economist Richard Wabakand helps put the index together at CU's Lead School of Business. He joins us from Boulder. And welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on just how pessimistic are business leaders in the state? Well,
1: the index is neutral at 50 and the uh, index dropped to 47. So a little bit below neutral, a little bit pessimistic, not, not horribly so, but
0: kind of surprising being below 50 given all of the conditions we see in the state. Okay, so this surprises you. And that has something to do with contrasting Colorado's economy, which has a lot of strong signs. And perhaps the national one, huh? Correct. When we
1: look at the national economy, we see a little bit more pessimism. We uh, have seen business investment decline during this year, and we've seen a lot of consternation in terms of the manufacturing sector in particular. The national manufacturing index dropped below 50, and the outlook on international trade dropped all the way down to 40. So they're really showing a fair degree of pessimism for the coming year.
0: Even though Colorado may have stronger indicators, huh?
1: Colorado has much stronger indicators. We continue to have a low unemployment rate. Our employment growth is very strong year over year. Our income growth is strong year over year. And even our GDP growth is strong year over year. We're pretty much a top 10 state for all of those indicators. So we don't see the state slipping into any sort of a recession. But we do see it slowing down, sort of in sync with the national economy.
0: Okay. Well, that, uh, of course, makes me wonder if you anticipate a national recession.
1: We're not forecasting a national recession. We're forecasting growth of GDP next year to be closer to 1% than 2%, so definitely a slowdown. But the, you know, sort of thumbnail version of a recession, two quarters of negative growth, we just don't see that on the horizon.
0: How much of this has to do with trade and fears around trade wars? So for
1: our index, the largest uh, issue raised by the respondents was the trade issue. Interesting to some extent because Colorado is not a huge trade state. We do have international trade and clearly agriculture and manufacturing and in services. But we don't depend as much on international trade as some other major states do. The index from the Institute for Supply Management showed very slow trade and export growth nationally. The number was down near 40. So it does appear that national pessimism by business is being driven by the trade issue.
0: What were other factors?
1: Well, other factors in, co- in our Colorado survey related to national political climate, but it really comes down to, in almost all of these cases, the concept of uncertainty.
0: Do you mean political uncertainty uh, in the face of perhaps impeachment uh, given that there is a presidential election on the horizon?
1: So our survey was conducted before the impeachment proceedings began, but we do think uh, and have heard many times in in past surveys and from business leaders anecdotally that the uh, lack of agreement between the parties and the whole national political scene in terms of the presidential election is really giving them some pause
0: for concern. You mentioned business investments. What does that mean that businesses are less likely to invest in?
1: It's machinery, it's software, it's buildings, and it's something that's going to help the productivity of their company and of the economy in the year ahead. So right now, they're not making those capital expenditures at the same rate.
0: Does that also mean investment in people? In other words, could we expect to see less hiring?
1: So the national numbers are indicating that our Colorado numbers in our index are also slightly below 50, but not dramatically below 50. But in the tight labor market we're in, I think that's probably less of a concern. We have such low unemployment in Colorado, and for that matter, we're probably below full employment nationally. So when you put those pieces together, uh, the hiring number is less concerning, frankly, than the capital expenditure number. Do you ever have fears as an economist of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, believe me, I have concern about the self-fulfilling prophecy. Anytime you release something like this or you're talking about an economic slowdown that's, you know, six months or a year out, you wonder if you are, in fact, influencing the economic slowdown.
0: Just to wrap up, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that business is a bit tentative right now. They want to make sure that they have a cushion as opposed to making big investments to weather a potential storm. Do you think that's right?
1: That's absolutely correct. We got caught a little bit by surprise in the 2008 downturn, obviously. A lot of businesses were going great guns and then all of a sudden we had a rapid change in the economy and they were held with a lot of excess inventory and really caught short in terms of finances. And a lot of these companies right now are saying, maybe we're just going to take a little bit of a wait and see. Uh, we're not going to cut back in terms of our production right now, but we're not going to plan for additional growth at a, a rapid rate.
0: Richard, thank you. My pleasure. CU business economist Richard Wabekind on the Leeds Business Confidence Index, which has fallen into pessimistic territory for the first time since 2011. <music> With Donald Trump as president, norms are often flouted. His supporters say they like that, but it's now led to an impeachment investigation. For some perspective on how President Trump has bucked diplomatic norms, including the Ukraine call, retired Ambassador Christopher Hill is here. He's former dean of international studies at the University of Denver. He previously served as ambassador to four countries, including Iraq and Korea, under presidents of both parties. These days, he personally supports Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. And Ambassador, welcome back to the program.
3: Thank you very much.
0: When you read the reconstructed transcript of that call between President Trump and Ukraine's president, what struck you as a longtime diplomat?
3: Well, I think what struck me, and this goes back really to the um, breakup of the Soviet Union, the fact that Ukraine became an independent country, was the importance that the United States attached to Ukraine's independence. And the reason was that without Ukraine, Russia is just Russia, Russia. But if Russia has this kind of symbiotic relationship with Ukraine, Russia becomes again the Soviet Union. So this is a big deal for American foreign policy, and not just for Democrats or for Republicans, but for everybody and for keeping this consensus that Ukraine's success is very important. So in listening to that transcript, I realized there was nothing about Ukraine's success, and it was all about the U.S. political uh, U.S. political issues and the president's effort to find some things on, on Biden. Uh,
0: you're helping us understand what you think um, are the larger forces behind the Ukraine issue, and that is that uh, President Putin, I imagine, in Russia would see uh, the addition of Ukraine as a, a major success and a rebuilding of something that he sort of pines for.
3: Well, I think to understand it, we're talking a thousand years of Russian history where many Russians believe that there's really no such thing as Ukraine. It's simply a part of mother Russia. It's a complex uh, relationship. But uh, it's been very important for the U.S. to have this independent Ukraine that is not uh, beholden to this to Russia.
0: And it's been very important to Putin to keep them together. So in this sense, it surprises you that there wasn't more focus in the call on that dynamic. Uh, what else surprised you about
3: Well, first of all, there was no focus on that dynamic. And secondly, I think the president has this view that somehow Russia did not interfere in the U.S. election, but somehow Ukraine, which, by the way, is not a particularly powerful or adroit country in the world, it has a lot of problems, that somehow Ukraine, in fact, interfered by trying to help Hillary Clinton. This is one of his canards that he has. And so, but this is clearly uh, kind of evolved, and now we see somehow uh, fertile ground for complaining about or for accusing uh, what he believes to be or who he believes to be his next opponent, and that is Joe Biden. Uh, did it surprise you that Joe Biden came up in this call? Uh you know, we've seen the president kind of enlist any and everybody that he could on the issue of uh, his political future. And certainly the question of how he treats his departments in the in Washington, whether in this time it was the State Department, it's been the Justice Department, it's been the FBI, it's been the CIA. So I think he kind of marshals all these accoutrements of of power and to a certain extent is personalizing them. And this is a real bad, um, bad news, frankly, for our our own institutions. I worked in the State Department for three, 33 years. I certainly know the people involved in this. And they've been involved in this as part of longstanding U.S. foreign policy. And they have never been involved in this as part of the president's politics.
0: Uh, it's interesting that you say the the words bad news, because President Trump, apparently in this call with the Ukrainian president, used those very words about the former ambassador Uh, from the U.S. to the Ukraine. Uh, That's Marie Ivanovich. Uh, And uh, I wonder what you make of a president on a call to a foreign leader besmirching... A diplomat. Yeah. You, well, you, you, you have walked in these shoes.
3: I, I, I sure have. You're you're out there in a country. There's an election going on in that country. You continue to have normal business with the government, but the opposition may be claiming that you're closer to the government than you are to the insurgent opposition that is hoping to win the election. They win the election and they turn around and say, look, you ambassador, uh, you you had your embassy supporting the existing government and that was somehow unfair. Well, clearly, uh, uh, the new Ukrainian leadership felt it uh, necessary or desirable to tell President Trump. And the way this is usually handled is, look, thank you very much, but I can assure you our diplomats play these things down the middle. And I can personally assure you that Masha Yovanovitch played this down the middle. And so they go after uh, so he goes after Masha and the the president says, OK, we'll, we'll do something about her. Then the, the issue comes up. Did Pompeo withdraw her in order to protect her from the wrath of this president? Did he withdraw her in order to Uh, complete the task the president laid out. We won't know until there's some congressional hearings on this subject.
0: We do know that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was uh, a witness to this call with the Ukrainian president. Masha is Marie Yovanovitch, by the way. Masha is the diminutive. But I would say... Let me ask you this. Do you believe that in this call, then, the president behaved inappropriately illegally, what what word would you ascribe well, to Well, I'm
3: not a lawyer, so I won't use the term illegal. Uh, I am a diplomat, so I will use the term inappropriate. You know, this is a very beset little country. I mean, it's not so little, but it's a country with a lot of problems, and it doesn't need our problems, our political problems exported to it. So I think it was quite inappropriate as we understand this conversation as released by the White House itself.
0: You were a special envoy to Kosovo in 1998 and 1999, leading up to the U.S. bombing of that country. And it was in 1998... President Clinton was impeached. I'm curious how those impeachment proceedings impacted your work as a diplomat, if at all.
3: Yeah, I mean, when you're overseas and some Uh, doings are going on in Washington and your first job really is to explain to people what's going on and and, uh, explain this is a process, we're going through it you too have processes Uh, I can assure you the United States will survive this and we will uh, whatever we do we will continue to support you in the case I was ambassador in a little country called Macedonia which was not disinterested in how we were handling their country and also the uh, neighboring uh, Kosovo but in that case it was purely a domestic issue the issue of whether the president or uh, lied to the fbi in terms of his his uh, relationship with monica lewinsky i would say this issue is is quite different because he's ac- asking for something from the ukrainians that i didn't a- have to ask from anyone which was he's trying to ask for information evidence or whatever in order to frankly besmirch his his what he believes to be
0: his upcoming rival we're speaking with ambassador Christopher Hill, retired diplomat now at the University of Denver. Uh, The Secretary of State has confirmed, uh, once again, that he listened to that call with the Ukrainian president. There is now a battle between Pompeo and congressional Democrats. Over when and whether some State Department officials will testify in the impeachment investigation, your thoughts on this tension between the branches? Well, first of all, it's very unusual for a Secretary of
3: State to be on the same call that a president is on. It happens, but it's kind of unusual. And it might have happened because Pompeo might have been over at the White House, and the president said, "Hey, I'm about to talk to the Ukrainian president Zelensky. Why don't you stick around and listen?" It might be something entirely innocent like that. I guess what. Uh, Secretary Pompeo needs to explain is why did he spend two weeks not acknowledging this and, frankly, really avoiding the issue when he was asked uh, over the weekend on one of the Sunday talk shows, and uh, he clearly, um, you know, sidestepped the issue. So I think it's kind of opened him up to some criticism, especially as he's been very tough on the on the congressional uh, inquiry and suggesting that he does not want to, as he put it, subject the men and women of the State Department to what he felt was harassment. Of course, many people remember his role in the Benghazi hearing, which, when he was quite willing to summon any and all uh, representatives from the State Department to come up and explain what happened in Benghazi. So I think he's going to have to get himself out of a kind of difficult situation right now.
0: Very briefly, we have uh, just about a minute. We mentioned that you've endorsed former Vice President Joe Biden You held a fundraiser for him just last weekend. This is in your personal capacity, not associated with DU. Correct. You know, one of the things President Trump wanted President Zelensky to do was investigate the activities of Biden's son Hunter in Ukraine for possible wrongdoing. No evidence of such. What are you making of even some Democrats who say, listen, if you're a top leader your family shouldn't be involved in business dealings in a particular country. You have about thirty seconds.
3: Well, I'm I'm not a top leader in the U.S., but I wish there were a law against uh, the prodigy of various uh, leaders, whether Republican or Democrats, being able to have jobs that they wouldn't otherwise have. But Frankly speaking, this has nothing to do with anything. And what, has, what is really the issue here is how the president is conducting foreign policy.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Christopher Hill, retired diplomat, now chief global advisor at the University of Denver. He served as ambassador to four countries, including Iraq and Korea. Meanwhile, the Trump re-election campaign has just named its key staffers for Colorado and this Rocky Mountain region. We have invited them to join us. CBD is everywhere these days, but what is it and what's really known about it? That is what Anne Maria Watt explores in the latest episode of On Something, the podcast from CPR about life after legalization.
4: I'm a big
5: fan of CBD. I use CBD uh, frequently, uh, especially when I'm trying to get some deep sleep.
0: There are people who I've known in my life, like my piano teacher who are now rallying in Texas for this usage because of the medical, like the medicinal use.
4: By now, I'm sure we're not breaking the news that CBD is everywhere. It's the new kale. It's the new superfood. It's whatever you want to call it. Here in Denver, between talks at a TEDx event we were attending, we asked a bunch of folks to share their thoughts on CBD with us. And perhaps not surprisingly, nearly everyone we asked had something to say.
0: I mean, I, I know that it has, like, healing properties, but I'm not, like, all up on all the data. Oh, yeah, I saw it in Walgreens looking next to the cough syrup I was going to get for my kids. Uh, some of my kids were sick, and it was just right next to them. And I was like, CBD? I thought this was a dispensary thing, but I guess it's everywhere.
4: So what is this stuff? And how did it start showing up everywhere? How did something that is made from cannabis, which is still illegal in many states, become part of a never-ending national wellness industry spin cycle? How can something that has such promising research behind it as a medicine be the same stuff that Gwyneth Paltrow is trying to sell in her Goop newsletter, along with Yoni eggs and moon juice? This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. On this podcast, we talk about people's relationships with weed. And now that your mom, your sister, and all your in-laws are into CBD, lots more folks in America have a relationship with weed. CBD is one of those examples of the way that pot just captures our imagination. I think the second that we came up with the idea for a podcast about legalization, people started telling us immediately that we needed to be talking about CBD. And so we got to talking with Martin Lee, one of the founders of Project CBD in California. It's a nonprofit that aims to promote the scientific research around CBD we're not
5: cheerleaders for CBD. Mm -hmm. We're certainly pro-cannabis therapeutics. We feel there's a lot of value there. And we feel that CBD in and of itself adds immensely to that. But we feel it's also important to ground what we know in science, in actual experience. Uh, It's pretty obvious that CBD is uh, an impressive molecule. We don't have to exaggerate what it does.
4: It was 2006 when Martin remembers first hearing a scientist talk about CBD at a conference in Switzerland. This conference was actually focused on psychedelics, and Martin was riveted by probably the least psychedelic substance being talked about because, you know, CBD doesn't get you high. It wasn't until fairly recently that we had an understanding of how CBD works and what it can do. But scientists have known about CBD for quite some time, as far back as the 1940s. And human beings have been using cannabis for centuries, long before anyone had come up with the name cannabidiol. That's what CBD stands for, by the way. But we're not going to dive into all that history right now. No. This episode is about the modern history of CBD, the Kim Kardashianization of CBD, if you will.
5: I, I was like, I can't do another
1: baby shower. I can't do another baby right. game.
4: This is Kim herself. I know we can never get enough of Kim Kardashian year, talking with E! News earlier so this year. I just want a zen, like, CBD-themed <laughs> baby oh, shower. That really? The thing. Oh, girl, I can help you with that. <laughs> CBD did not yet have that celebrity cachet when Martin Lee was at that conference in 2006. A few years later, though, marijuana growers in Northern California, who were supplying California's medical marijuana market, were tweaking their plants. They were trying to breed plants that had higher levels of THC. That's the stuff that gets you stoned. But some of these growers made some mistakes. Weed strains that wouldn't get anybody high. Because instead of THC, these plants were potent in CBD. Okay, before we go on, we need to have a little vocabulary round. Because with all of this technical jargon, we might just get lost in the weeds. So, CBD, we've already established, stands for cannabidiol. It doesn't get you stoned, but it's the part of cannabis that's responsible for relaxation. It's been approved by the FDA to treat some rare forms of epilepsy. It has anti-inflammatory effects, etc., THC is another compound we've mentioned here that stands for tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the stuff that gets you stoned, gives you the munchies, might make you paranoid. And THC and CBD sort of work together like two interlocking pieces.
5: One of the problems with THC, people can get too high and it can be uncomfortable. Right. It can be, rather than relaxing, it can be anxiety-producing. Uh, CBD, if anything, is just the opposite. CBD has an anxiety-reducing effect. And that's, I think, one of the most common uses for CBD is as an anxiolytic or anxiety-lessening agent.
4: A cannabinoid is a chemical that naturally occurs in the cannabis plant. So CBD and THC are a couple of examples of cannabinoids. But more than 100 cannabinoids have been isolated from the cannabis plant. There are also other plants that produce cannabinoids, but not in the quantities that marijuana does. So, calm down. (laughs) Cannabinoids affect our bodies by talking to our endocannabinoid system. That's because, dun-dun-dun, our body naturally produces its own cannabinoids. Cannabinoids made by the body are like little messengers that send signals to the brain or the gut or whatever part to regulate basic bodily functions. The cannabinoids that you smoke or vape or eat, those can imitate these little messengers.
5: It was only discovered, actually started in the late 1980s, Let's say in high school, and you studied biology of all the different systems: uh, the skeletal system, the the um, uh, circulatory system, reproductive system, nervous system, etc. Yeah, et cetera, I don't remember the
4: endocannabinoid system in there anywhere.
5: <laughs> no, it would not have been there. And it's again mm-hmm. one of the reasons why cannabis is very versatile therapeutically, because cannabis very directly affects the endocannabinoid system, and therefore can affect all these other physiological systems as well.
4: The endocannabinoid system is still a pretty recent discovery, and it's not totally understood. There's a lot of emerging research, though, that suggests it has a major role in regulating our memories, our appetite, our metabolism, how we respond to stress, sleeping, reproduction, pain response, all kinds of things. All right, so now that we all know our terms, let's move on. In the eyes of the world, the medical marijuana movement was at its core still about people getting high. That's because up until then, THC was the name of the game. But Martin thought the new research on CBD would force people to reevaluate everything they thought about marijuana. This. This was the stuff that could be medicine. This was the stuff that could challenge marijuana's status as a Schedule One drug. In other words, CBD could change everything. Can you remember a turning point when all of a sudden CBD was just everywhere?
5: I think there were a couple of key tipping points. One was in the summer of 2013 when CNN did the special with Sanjay Gupta.
4: People are lighting up all over the country. They call it the Green Rush. The show, simply called Weed, was an hour-long special in which Dr. Sanjay Gupta put medical marijuana under a microscope. And yes, while this special featured the predictable B-roll of lots of pot plants and people puffing away on glass pipes and stuff like that, Gupta actually spent most of his time focused on the family of Charlotte Figge in Colorado Springs. What would you do if this were your child? Charlotte Figgy had an extreme form of epilepsy. Her body was so frail that any seizure
1: could kill her. With no traditional treatment left to try and the clock ticking away, her
4: parents decided to try marijuana. Charlotte was just five years old. The show featured footage of the little girl having a seizure. And this might be hard for some of you to watch. (laughs) It's okay, baby. She had hundreds of seizures weekly as a result of a rare type of epilepsy called Dravet syndrome. Charlotte's epilepsy was so severe that all of the normal treatments didn't help. Her mom took her to see a Harvard-trained physician in Denver who wrote her a prescription for cannabis high in CBD. And at the time, CBD was still relatively under the radar. And this doctor was an outlier for his willingness not only to prescribe it, but to prescribe it to a child. After jumping through lots of hoops, Charlotte's mom obtained a liquid solution of CBD with little to no THC in it.
5: I measured it with a syringe and squirted it under her tongue. It was exciting and very nerve-wracking.
2: Holding Charlotte in her arms, Paige waited.
1: An hour ticked by. And then another. And then another.
5: She didn't have seizure that day. And then she didn't have a seizure that night. To just sit there and, yeah. sit there and look at To see eye eye. that kind of transformation is very, very powerful. It, it, you know, real tearjerker. But I think when people saw that on national television, international television, you know, there's two things that came through really powerfully. You remember, you know, we had grown up learning that marijuana was the assassin of youth. Mm-hmm. And here we have a situation where we're seeing certain kind of marijuana, the CBD-rich marijuana was saving the lives of children. And not only that, it was doing it in a way that they weren't getting intoxicated, the kids were getting high. And that was just mind-blowing to to people in the United States. It was really an eye-opener.
4: Charlotte's family, with a big assist from CNN, had kicked the door open. They had gotten help from the Stanley Brothers, a cannabis company that started making the liquid solution of CBD that Charlotte needed. And after the CNN special, the Stanley brothers saw a huge spike in demand. Their CBD was made from a weed strain that used to be called Hippie's Disappointment. But after they met Charlotte, they renamed it Charlotte's Web. After the documentary aired, you started to hear a lot more about self-described medical marijuana refugees. These were families that moved to Colorado to get their own Charlotte's Web. They too had children with epilepsy, or other severe, difficult-to-treat conditions. And then came the backlash. Gupta received criticism for painting CBD as this miracle cure, when it didn't actually work for every child. If you take nothing else away from this episode, take this. The link between CBD and epilepsy is the only concrete proof that we have of CBD's effectiveness as a treatment for any medical condition. All of those other kids who came to Colorado in search of a CBD miracle cure, they got mixed results. But by then, other cannabis companies had seen an opportunity. So CBD products started showing up in dispensaries all over. And not just in Colorado, either. Now, here's another big watershed moment in 2018. Well, the latest Farm Bill legalized industrial hemp as a crop plant, sparking interest for a number of producers looking to capitalize on the new commodity. That explosion of CBD that you've noticed recently? You can thank the 2018 Farm Bill. Hemp is a type of cannabis with very low THC levels and much higher CBD levels. It's a plant that can be used to make everything from paper, to fabric, to insulation, to fuel, to food. And it was illegal in America for as long as marijuana has been illegal. But last year, it was legalized, which meant that certain types of CBD extract, which had very low levels of THC, are now legal too. That meant that anyone could get in on this thing, not just cannabis companies in legal states. CBD was now fair game for vitamin manufacturers, cosmetics companies, and wellness brands.
5: I think that there's a lot of value in in being open-minded with respect to CBD-rich cannabis, but that doesn't mean one should be sort of taken in by all the marketing hoopla. I, I think we're at a kind of a transition phase here where we're, we're just now as a culture welcoming back CBD-rich cannabis, this traditional herb, into the pharmacopeia, into the pantheon of medicinal herbs. Into
4: and, Kim Kardashian's baby shower.
5: <laughs> which I was not invited to, and I feel personally insulted. Because How unfair. <laughs> if, if, uh, 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 we've done so much for CBD, at least they could have invited us. But anyway, <laughs> we'll give them a pass this one time. <laughs>
4: All right, ha-ha at the Kim Kardashian jokes, but she has major cultural clout. If she's talking about it, there are already lots of companies out there trying to make money off of it. Culturally speaking, CBD's seemingly magical healing powers have been fully co-opted by the wellness industry. It started to occupy this friendly millennial pink corner of our lives as a healing bomb for everything from aches and pains to anxiety. And Martin says the CBD explosion is about filling a certain void.
5: We're in a situation in the United States where there's a a lot of dissatisfaction with the healthcare system. People feel it's broken. It's too expensive. The the medical insurance is almost like a joke in the United States compared to other countries. So there's a deep dissatisfaction with the way things are in terms of conventional medicine in the United States. And and it's out of that satisfaction, I think, comes a longing for non-pharmaceutical approaches to healing, approaches that are gentle, uh, that don't come with a lot of harsh side effects, as pharmaceuticals tend to to bring. So you might say that the moment was very, very ripe for for something like the CBD
4: Mm -hmm. phenomenon. But if you think we've reached peak CBD already, you'd be wrong, according to Martin. He says we haven't even begun to realize its potential. CBD comes from cannabis, which creates big roadblocks when it comes to research. Even in legal states, the federal government restricts cannabis research because cannabis is still a Schedule I drug. So when it comes to CBD, a substance with lots of interest, surrounded by lots of questions, it's easy to feel like all you've got to go on is anecdotal evidence.
5: When people are saying time and again, oh my God, this really helped the nausea I was experiencing after chemotherapy like nothing else did. And you hear this time and time again. You hear it from uh, patients, from doctors. That, that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. One shouldn't poo-poo anecdotal evidence just because it's anecdotal. One should understand that that has a certain kind of value that's not the same as uh, the randomized, double-blind, gold standard right. experimentation.
4: The Food and Drug Administration has only recently waded into the CBD waters. Earlier this year, the agency held the first public hearings on CBD and has been exploring possible ways to regulate CBD products that are already on the market. Because, right now, they're largely unregulated. There's little to no check on what companies can print on the labels of CBD products. Even the potency advertised on these products might be far from accurate. Also, did you know that most companies that are currently marketing CBD as a supplement or a food are technically doing it illegally to begin with? They're not supposed to be making health claims that haven't been proven about supplements like CBD.
0: Anne Maria Wad and an excerpt of the latest episode of On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization. A warning with so many unknowns about CBD, check with your doctor before taking it, especially if you're on other medication. There he was, President Woodrow Wilson, standing at Pueblo's Memorial Hall, calling on Americans to support the League of Nations. Not long after, Wilson collapsed. And many believe after that fateful day in Colorado in 1919, the nation was run by a shadow presidency. To talk about this pivotal chapter, which played out a century ago, Wilson biographer John Milton Cooper joins us. And John, thanks for being with us. Very glad to be here. I didn't know that about Wilson's illness. I wonder if this is history that surprises people. It should. It should surprise people. It's our worst incident of presidential disability.
2: For the last year and a half of Wilson's presidency, he was not a fully functioning president. And there was a shadow president, or there's a shadow presidency for a brief period after he had the stroke. And the person who was... In her own way, running things was Mrs. Wilson, Edith Bolingalt, Wilson. And in a one way, you could say that for those brief months, we did have a woman president. Now she always insisted that she never usurped anything, she never took any decisions on her own. But what she also said was that she controlled access to it. I think one thing we've learned over the over the generations is that he or she, who controls access to the president, to some extent, is president. So, yeah, I think you could say uh,
0: she was a shadow president. Wow. Okay, more on the stroke in just a bit, but I do want to set the larger scene. World War I had been over for about a year, but 1919 was not an easy time in America. What was happening? Strikes, inflation, race riots, the
2: beginning of what would blossom or fester at the end of, the, of 1919, the Red Scare all of these things. I know 1919 deserves to go down in the books
0: as one of the, the bad, truly bad years in American history. World War I was called the war to end all wars. Those are not Wilson's words, actually. And uh, Wilson felt an obligation to make that true at the very least. He proposed this League of Nations to sort out problems through diplomacy, sort of a first draft of the UN. Uh, but by 1919, he still couldn't get it passed by Congress. Why was there opposition?
2: The opposition, some of it was straight out isolationist. That actually was less important than, than many people think. The heyday of isolationism actually would be in the 1930s. Uh, it was more a question of American sovereignty. Were we compromising or were, were we too much compromising American sovereignty to enter into the League of Nations? The League of Nations was different from what the UN became because the UN actually has no collective security clauses
0: in there. Uh, that the League did to halt aggression, to contain wars. And so Wilson takes his pitch directly to the American people. He set out by train stopping in cities and towns all the way to the West Coast. And he lands in Pueblo, September 25th. What do you know of this scene in Pueblo? He got a good crowd. Uh, they turned out to see him.
2: He was not, to put it mildly, not in good shape. In fact, the strain on him was even evident to the reporters. Various reporters in newspapers were talking about uh, how the president looked tired and weary, and he stumbled sometimes getting onto the platform. Another thing that affected him, I think maybe folks in Colorado will appreciate this, was that going out to the west coast and then coming back, he's going through the high plains and the Rocky Mountain West. So increased altitude, uh, much drier. Uh, this affected his breathing exacerbated the headaches he was getting. These are probably premonitory signs of the big stroke that would come hmm. soon after he got back to Washington.
0: He delivers the the final lines of his speech in Pueblo, and uh, I know they still resonate with you today. Would you read those?
2: Sure, I'm certainly glad to.
0: There is one thing
2: that the American people always rise to and extend their hand to, and that is the truth of justice and liberty and of peace. We have accepted that truth, and we're going to be led by it. And it is going to lead us and through us the world out into pastures of quietness and peace, such as the world never dreamed of before.
0: And indeed, the Pueblo speech would be President Wilson's last. He gets back on the train, stops briefly in Rocky Ford to shake some hands. And that evening, still on the train, he collapsed. What happened
2: was that he'd, uh, as far as his doctor was concerned, he'd been pretty good during the evening. He went to bed about 10 o'clock. And then around 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, he woke Mrs. Wilson and just said, I'm feeling terrible. And so she summoned the doctor, and the doctor saw that he was just in no shape to go on. And at that point, against his objections, Mrs. Wilson, Dr. Grayson, and Joe Tumulty, his secretary, all said, Mr. President, that's it. We have to get you back to Washington. So what they did was they canceled the rest of the tour. There were about five more speeches scheduled and uh, cleared the tracks and got him back to Washington. And in the night of October 1st, 2nd, he suffered the stroke. He was asleep. And when he got up in the morning, he got out of bed and tried to walk across the room to go to the bathroom. And he couldn't make it. Uh, He didn't fall down exactly. He sank down. And... The stroke in itself was, was very bad, but for Wilson, the problem was it was a, a perfect storm because about a week after he suffered the stroke, he came down with a very bad urinary infection, a high fever, uh, and that really debilitated him and was life-threatening.
0: So it's that combination mm. uh, of th- that that just did him in. How much was this picked up, if at all, in the press? Like, what was the nation privy to versus what was actually going on? Very little. There's a cover-up. Mrs. Wilson
2: absolutely refused to let this out. In fact, no official statement of the White House ever used the word stroke. And it wasn't until about three months later than when one of his other attending physicians, one of the ones who came into treat the urinary infection, basically let the cat out of the bag and said, well, the president, of course, has suffered a stroke, and he's got paralyzed on the left side. The rumor mill was going all around, for example, that that he lost his mind. And we had a crazy man in the White House. See, there are bars on the uh, windows of the White House. Well, the bars had been put up when Theodore Roosevelt was president, because <laughs> his sons were hitting baseballs and breaking windows. So some senators decided, let's find out. And they cooked up a pretext of something diplomatic involving Mexico and sent two senators. The people in the press called it the Smelling Committee because they're going to smell him out. Hmm. And what happened was that uh, they, they really stage-managed it. He and Grayson and Mrs. Wilson, first of all, they had some bed covers over the, the paralyzed left arm and they had some papers on the nightstand to the right that he would pick up with his right hand. And they were doing a, a snow job here of uh, making it seem... Uh, as if he was much less impaired than he
0: was. You'd said at the outset that Edith Wilson was exercising some control. uh, If she wasn't solely in charge of decision-making, she was certainly a party to it. What important decisions were going on in that period that might have determined the direction of the country that Wilson wasn't sort of all there for? There's never a good time for
2: something like this to happen. But this was a particularly bad time because this was when the Senate was going to come to its vote on consent to the treaty that is for the League of Nations. The peace treaty contained the covenant of the League of Nations. So, to join the League of Nations, the United States would have to ratify the peace treaty. If there's any hope of compromise,
0: he really had to be in on it, and he wasn't. And now that that's part of the tragedy. We know of course that the United States did not join the League of Nations, and it was it was actually 50 years later that the nation passed the 25th Amendment allowing for a president to be removed from office if he or she's incapable of governing. Wilson was certainly on people's minds, but were, were there other examples? Well, the 25th Amendment comes after John Kennedy's assassination.
2: And the worry was, well, what if Kennedy hadn't been killed outright? You know, what, what if he'd been disabled by this gunshot wound to the head? Before that, and it happened in Denver, by the way, Eisenhower had suffered heart attack. If you went back a little further, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was not in good shape during his last year, year and a half as president. So, the evidence had accumulated. Wilson was somewhat on people's minds. Uh, I think. I think the worst problem of presidential ability is not disability. Is not so much the physical disability, such as Wilson's or or Franklin Roosevelt's, for that matter. But uh, it's mental instability, emotional instability. And one of the worst aspects to the stroke on Wilson was to impair his judgment. His his mind was clear. He could think just as well as before. But he, he didn't have the, the emotional balance, the, the kind of things that go into judgment. I think the best protection we have against a situation like Wilson's or FDR's, for that matter, of the last year uh, is, believe it or not, the mass media, the electronic media, because... A president can't hide now Hmm. uh, the the way Wilson did in 1919 or FDR did in 1944. The the public simply has to have sights and sounds of the president in that way. So that's some
0: protection for that kind of situation. Of course, I suppose in more modern times, there are folks who might point to the last years of the Reagan administration and, you know, lots of talk about the fact that he had dementia at that point. Well, yes, there's
2: there, is, there is, apparently more and more of that is coming out, as we all know. Ronald Reagan was an actor. People would uh, would brief him, you know, would talk to him, and then he would go out and uh, either in front of the press or some public occasion or even meeting with others, and uh, he'd learn his lines and go into his act. So uh, Reagan, as I say, was just a, a good old trooper there. <laughs>
0: Well, John, thank you so much for helping us understand this chapter of the Wilson presidency and sort of last gasp in Pueblo. I appreciate your time. Right. Thank you. John Milton Cooper is the author of Woodrow Wilson, a biography. A century ago, Wilson delivered a speech in Pueblo, then collapsed that same night. He suffered a stroke two days later and never fully recovered. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow me at CPR Warner on Twitter. The show is at Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.